0: I am so excited to be with you tonight, and uh, we are starting a brand new series, and we're going to be in this for several weeks, and I'm really looking forward to it. I have been looking forward to it. I heard a story by the Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, and it's a story about a country in which only ducks lived. That's right. And these ducks on Sunday morning, they waddled down to the duck church. And they waddled down that center aisle, and they took their place in the duck pews, and they squatted there. And then the duck minister waddled on up to the duck pulpit, and he opened his duck Bible, and he said, Ducks, you have wings, and with these wings you can soar into the sky like eagles. You must fly, use your wings." And all the ducks said, amen, quack, (laughs) quack. And then they all waddled home. I added the quack, quack, that wasn't Kierkegaard, but the point of this story is they didn't do what he said. And how many times have we sat in a sermon, and it's been sermon after sermon after sermon, and we've heard truth, and we've acknowledged truth, and we've affirmed truth. But we don't apply the truth, and we don't seek to really understand the truth on a deeper level, you see. And I thought about that duck story, and I thought, what if there were some other variations on that story that would make it even stranger? What if in this duck church, uh, the duck minister never even mentioned wings? What if you had a duck congregation out there, and he's up there, and he doesn't talk about the wings at all? Well, that would be the real tragedy. I mean, it's tragic enough, but here you got a duck congregation. they got wings. The duck minister, he's got wings, but none of them are talking about wings. There's no wings to be seen. Oh, sure, every once in a while you might hear the word mentioned. Maybe they got a couple songs in the duck hymnal that mention wings here or there. Maybe once in a blue moon a feather might waft down from the platform, but that's about it. Or maybe there's a variation where you got a church of ducks and all they talk about are wings. It's wing this, it's wing that. They don't talk about anything else. And you'd think the only thing that was important in the whole duck life was flying. And they just totally ignore fishing and swimming and quacking and waddling and nesting. It's all about flying. You say, Pastor Scott, are you obsessed with ducks? Well, pardon me. I just thought the illustration fit the bill. And right about this time is when people turn the YouTube video off because they're like, this is wasting my time. Listen, we're going to embark on a series tonight that addresses a subject that, depending on your church background, has been avoided, it's been uh, misunderstood, it's been misrepresented, it's been improperly emphasized, or improperly de-emphasized, and the topic that we're gonna talk about is not an it, as we shall soon see, but rather it is a person, and it is not a person like you or I, it is a person with a capital P. It is a divine being, and that is a figure that features prominently in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And such a person who figures into your Bible for the length of it certainly is someone who should be discussed, who should be studied, and it should be understood. He should be understood on a deep, deep level. This is not something that we need to get wrong. This is something that the Bible spends a lot of real estate on. And so we need to understand who this person is, what he does. And depending on where you come from, your understanding really uh, rests upon your faith tradition, your church tradition. Well, that's not how we roll here. We're going to let the Bible have the last word. How about that? And so let's look to God's word together over the next several weeks and let's see what it has to say about the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time and your word this evening and on several evenings to follow. And I, Lord, as I say those opening words of this prayer, Heavenly Father, I, I, I'm mindful that I, I could just as easily start a prayer by saying, Dear Jesus. And I could just as easily start a prayer by saying, Oh, Holy Spirit. Because those three, though they are distinct persons, they are one in their divine essence. And so we call upon that divine essence. We call upon the power of God, which is the Holy Spirit, to guide us in our study. May we discern properly through that Spirit to learn about that Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as I indicated in my prayer, the Holy Spirit is a member of a very elite group, And it's not a group like other groups that you may think of. It is unique in that it is a plurality, and yet at the same time, it is a singular entity, and it's called the Trinity. And in your notes, the Holy Spirit cannot be understood apart from the Trinity. How do you explain the Trinity? If I asked you, what's the Trinity? Uh, Some of you could answer me accurately. Some of you would look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Uh, Many of you would be able to blurt out words like uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you're not wrong, but does that tell the whole story? What is the Trinity? Well, there are three truths associated with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, In your notes, first of all, God is three persons. He is three persons. Secondly, each person is fully God. And third, there is one God. And all three of those are true. And all three of those are integral to the concept, the doctrine of the Trinity. And Christianity is, make no mistake, a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. We are not pagans. We are not polytheistic. uh, But we believe in a Trinity. We have something unique to our religion. There is no other religion around the world that has anything remotely close to resembling a Trinity, a God who is three in one. And there are a lot of... uh, dumb analogies to try to explain what the Trinity is. Maybe you've heard some of them. Some people try to say, well the Trinity is like water. And they say, you know, water. There are three states. To water it's a liquid, it could be a solid, and it could be a vapor, it could be a gas. And so it's it's all the same. It's all the same H two O, it just takes different forms, but it's all the same, and that's that's the Trinity, you know, uh, whether liquid, solid, or gas, it's Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity. And they try to use that to explain that. And, and to that I say close, but no cigar. Not even really close. It's not really close at all. In fact, it's dangerous because it would lead someone to an understanding of the Trinity that is modalistic. Modalism is a heresy. Modalism says that God, there is only one God. And that he just simply shape shifts. He assumes different forms so as to relate to us. That he becomes the son or he becomes the father or he becomes the spirit. And that is wrong. That is not biblical at all. And so that analogy breaks down. Some people say, well, the Trinity is like an egg. You know, an egg. An egg is is three components, but it's all an egg. You got the shell and you got the white and you got the yolk, but it's all one egg and that's Like the Trinity. Well, no, that's that's closer to what's called tritheism. Tritheism teaches uh, a heresy, and hardly anybody in the church believes this. But it teaches a heresy that there is three gods in Christianity, and that we worship that each of those persons—Father, Son, Spirit—is an individual god. And that is not what we believe. That is not biblical. And the egg analogy breaks down because I'm here to tell you, it might sound cute, but that shell is a completely different substance than the yolk. OK, It is not the same. It is not the same substance at all. If you don't believe me, you just leave a little shell in your omelette next time, and you'll understand what I mean. I, you like crunchy omelets? I don't. So the only analogy that I've seen that, that even remotely comes close is, is a, it's a picture of a, an outline of a head, profile. And right here where your brain would be, there's a thought, and that thought represents God the Father. And the mouth of this head is open and out of that mouth comes a word and the word symbolizes God the Son who is the Logos, the word. Uh, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word is connected to a thought. And as the word comes out of the head it is surrounded by, by breath and that breath represents the Holy Spirit. In fact, The Hebrew and Greek words for spirit in your Bible, Ruach and Numa, both can be translated as breath, and when you use words, all of your words are surrounded by breath, and so these three things are all connected. That's maybe the best analogy on the Trinity I've ever heard, but it's imperfect as well. And the bottom line is, there's really no simplistic way to explain the Trinity. Is it a complex concept? It absolutely is. I acknowledge that, and yet it's, it's a mystery that must be embraced because it's something that the bible teaches and the holy spirit is what we call the third person of the trinity and that's why this series is called life in the third person but make no mistake just because he's the third person that doesn't mean he's he's the least important okay Uh, there are varying degrees of authority within the godhead but they are all divine They are all God. When you pray, does it matter if you pray to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? No, it does not. It all gets to the same place because the Holy Spirit is of the utmost importance, and he is absolutely divine. And this concept is not unique to the New Testament. There is an Old Testament precedent. Uh, In fact, you read in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is a text that is near and dear to the heart of every Jew. They call this the Shema, and they recite this at synagogue. And this is something that uh, they use, and they emphasize that word, one, here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and they repeat that word, one, and they do that as sort of a rebuke to pagans, and, and in recent centuries, a rebuke to Christians, who hold to the trinity and they see this as proof that there's no trinity because our god is one we serve one god one god and they don't understand the trinity however i would say the trinity is not incompatible with deuteronomy at all because that verse first of all christians don't believe Uh, in three gods, okay? Uh, Colossians 8, 6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And when we look at this verse in Deuteronomy, the Trinity totally affirms this verse and vice versa. Because if you look at the word for one in the Hebrew, it's the word ichad, which is one of two words that can be used for one. The other is uh, yahid, and Ichad speaks of a compound unity, while Yahid speaks of a singular unity. You understand? And so when, when we look at that, we see that this is, this is a, a oneness, much as this church is one church, and yet within this church there are many, many members, many who are of this body, and yet we are unified. And the word for God Uh, that is used there is Elohim. You've got Lord, which is his personal name, Yahweh. The Lord, our God, Elohim, which we saw in Genesis, refers to the the generic name of God that, that reveals his plurality, that there's multiple persons within that name. And then it comes back to the name Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim. The Lord, Yahweh, is what? One. And so you've got multiple persons that are united in oneness, three persons in divine nature. And we've been studying Genesis on Sundays here. And we started off with chapter one, in the beginning, God. And we looked at that name Elohim. And we talked about how he is more than one within his unified uh, deity. And so having said that, we're going to look at characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Tonight, we're just going to talk about who he is. Uh, If you you came to learn about all the things that the Holy Spirit does, we're going to get to that. We're going to look next week at what He does, kind of an overview. And we're going to zero in on some specific things. And then as the weeks roll on, we're going to highlight specific ministries and activities of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about His baptism. We're going to talk about His regeneration. We're going to talk about His sealing. We're going to talk about His indwelling and how that contrasts with His filling. We're going to talk eventually about the gifts of the Spirit, and we're going to talk about all of them. Every gift the Bible mentions, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to teach it biblically, okay? And we're going to, we're going to deal with questions and misconceptions, and we're going to deal with all that. But tonight, we're going to look at who He is. And the first thing I want you to see in your notes is that the Holy Spirit, number one, was involved in creation. He was there in the beginning. We know from John 1 that Christ was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know from Colossians that all things were made through him. Okay. What about the Spirit? Was he there? We'll look at Genesis 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what? And the Spirit, the Spirit, Hebrew word, ruach, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so he is part of the Godhead. In verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image. Who's he talking about? That's the triune Godhead. That's Father, Son, Spirit. Okay? In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heaven... Who's the word? That's Christ. That's Christ. The word of the Lord. The heavens were made. And by the breath, ruach, same word as Spirit. The, uh, of his mouth, all of their host was made. Genesis, uh, uh, or excuse me, Job 12.10 says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath, ruach, of all mankind. Job 33.4, the spirit, ruach, same word. The spirit of God has made me. This is Job's own testimony. The spirit of God has made me and the breath, Nashama, of the Almighty gives me life. And so he is a creator. He is instrumental in creation. And so we see that this is not merely a New Testament idea. This didn't just originate with Christ announcing in the upper room that the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. No, we've got Old Testament uh, precedent for the Holy Spirit's coming. And He was not only promised, He was at work in the Holy Spirit. Even if it did look a little different in the Old Testament than it did in the New Testament. What's that mean, Pastor Scott? Well, I want you to see number two in your notes that the Holy Spirit empowered Old Testament saints for specific tasks, okay? If you've been going to church for any uh, length of time, you perhaps have come to the understanding that when you are born again, when you come by faith and you believe in Jesus Christ, His Spirit comes to reside in you. It, It indwells you. And that's a permanent indwelling. And we're going to learn more about that in the weeks to come. In the Old Testament, it didn't work that way. There was no indwelling spirit as a rule. What you had were instances where the spirit would come upon people for specific tasks. And it all happened at the pleasure of the Father. He would determine when and where the Holy Spirit would go to work. And he would work through people. And it would not be a permanent situation. It would be temporary. And here are a few examples. First of all, I want to tell you about a guy named Bezalel. And Bezalel is known as an artist. He's a craftsman, this Bezalel. And we read about him in Exodus 31. In verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name. Who called him? God did. I have called the name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have Filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs and work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, I know some pretty talented people. we got some Grecians and people around here that are very crafty people. I don't know anybody that could do everything perfectly. And this is a remarkable man to be such an expert uh, to devise. He can create. He can design. He he knows how to work with precious metals. He knows how to cut stone. He knows how to carve. He works in literally every craft known to man. Bezalel is not somebody who who uh, who had just honed this craft. He was not a talented person. When did he learn to do this? He didn't. He didn't learn to do it. How could he do it? It was the Holy Spirit that came upon him that enabled him to do it and what you learn about Bezalel is that he was used of God to design and build a very important object called the Ark of the Covenant and so God empowered this man for a specific time and a specific purpose and then there's a guy that you know probably named Gideon and Gideon was a leader but he was not a born leader If you read the early uh, verses on Gideon, you find out he did some dumb stuff. He made some bad moves, okay? But in Judges 6.14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Uh, From the hand of Midian, do I not send you? It's God sending him. In verse 34, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and so on and so forth. And so the Spirit of the Lord clothed him. He was not able to do what God called him to do apart from the power of the Spirit. And it was for this specific purpose, to deliver Israel from the Midianites. You've heard of a guy named Samson. What do you think of when you think of Samson? You think of a guy that looks like the rock. Don't you? He's a strong dude. You think of some big guy, some hulking figure. I don't think that's what he looked like. I think he looked more like me. You know? I think it's less, less Dwayne Johnson, more Kevin Hart. That's what I think, all right? Because I don't think that when Samson did the things that he did, I don't think anybody was expecting it. I think when they looked at him, they underestimated him. I think it was not the power of Samson. It was the power of God, amen? In Judges 15, 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Who? Samson! The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms they bound him. He was not able to break these ropes until the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and then it was like they were burned away. And so that's the power of God via the Spirit. Then you think of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah sixty-one, the spirit of the Lord of God, uh, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he says, because the Lord has anointed me. Okay, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Whatever came out of Isaiah's mouth was not because of Isaiah. It was because of the Holy Spirit that came upon him. And this is how it worked. So in the Old Testament, if you're you're jotting down notes, regardless of the people's spiritual condition, because not all these guys were that impressive, you just read the story of Samson. That dude had issues. He had big problems. And yet, by the pleasure of God, the Spirit empowered him to accomplish the purposes of God. But it would come upon these people temporarily. You don't see Samson just filled with the Spirit all the way through his account in Judges. No, it would come and it would go. There is one case in the Old Testament where the Spirit comes and appears to stay with an individual, and that's David. That is as close as you get to an indwelling of the Spirit in the Old Testament. As a rule, did not happen. Now, in the New Testament... If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've got the same Spirit that empowered Samson living inside you. Living inside you. And he does what God wills for him to do in your life. Okay? Now, when would that more permanent indwelling for all believers come? And was that predicted? Yes, it was. Number three in your notes, this Holy Spirit was promised by the Father. He was promised by the Father. And we see in Jeremiah, not... One of the Gospels, way back in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah 31, verse 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So he makes a covenant, and this covenant dates back to Jeremiah's day. Now, what's a covenant? Uh, it's, it's It's something that is orchestrated by God. A covenant always begins with God. And God reveals his will in scripture throughout a series of covenants. And most of them have to do with Israel or the the progenitors of Israel. We know he made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. Uh, He made a covenant with Abraham. Later he's going to make one with David. But there's a particular covenant that is in view here. And in Jeremiah 31 he says, I'm going to make a covenant with The house of Israel and the house of Judah, Israel, had split into two kingdoms, so they were were divided. But he says, I'm going to make a covenant with both houses. Every Jew will be a part of this covenant. And he says in verse 32 that this covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is a new covenant. It's not like that covenant that he made when they were delivered from Egyptian bondage. What is that covenant? That's called the covenant of law. It involved a guy named Moses. Moses uh, interacted with God, and God issued a covenant through Moses for the children of Israel, and he gave them his law. That was the covenant that dominates most of your Old Testament. But prophesied in the Old Testament is that God's going to give a new covenant Not the covenant of the law, a new one. Now, why do they need a new covenant? He goes on. He says that that is my covenant that they broke. They broke the old covenant. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. They broke the law. Just the good old boys. Never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they were born. Did you ever think Waylon Jennings would find its way? If Norman Greenbaum can join us, bring Waylon on in, I say. Uh, Did Israel keep the law far from it? In verse 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So God makes this promise. New covenant is coming. The Holy Spirit is the new covenant. I would write that down. The Holy Spirit is the new covenant. And you might be thinking, well, if he made this covenant with Israel, then how come they didn't receive it? How come we've received it and they didn't if he made the covenant with Israel? Well, it's true that they rejected the covenant. And if you're a Gentile, you better be glad about that because that's how you got here. You were grafted in to God's plan." When Israel rejected it, he opened the plan up to the rest of us, and that's why we're here. Now, that promise is still good for Israel. He has not forsaken them. And one day, prophecy in Scripture tells us that they will embrace this new covenant. But right now, there is a general blindness to it, okay? But this covenant, what I want you to see about it, number four in your notes, is that it is superior to the old covenant. The Holy Spirit is superior to the law. You see, under the old covenant of the law, uh, God's law was it was external. Okay, He wrote it down for Him. He's, he's like, "You're having trouble doing what I tell you? I'm going to write it down for you." And He puts it on tablets of stone. That didn't work either. And so now, with the new covenant and the Holy Spirit, God's law becomes internal. It becomes internal. So the Lord continues in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Oh, what a great day that will be for the nation of Israel. Now, let me show you Something in the New Testament. This is what Paul says. He's writing to the church at Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. He says, uh, You show these these Gentiles in, in Corinth, you show that you are a letter from Christ. Uh, the phrase is Epistole Christos. Okay. Uh, You're a letter. He's not talking about the letter that he's writing. He's talking to the recipients of his letter. And he's saying, You, you are a letter. You are a letter from the Lord. You say, uh, you say, what does that mean? Well, that means that as believers, we are not merely messengers. We are the message. We are the message. How so? When we encounter people and share, we are sharing the hope that is in us, that indwells us. What indwells us? The Spirit. What is the Spirit? It's the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's the gospel. Okay? Okay. So you are inhabited by the gospel of Jesus Christ because the spirit lives in you. And Paul says, you're a letter of Christ. He says, delivered by us. That means the result of of Paul's ministry. He came, he's got the spirit, he converts them. Now they are the message. And he says, you are written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. See, ink fades. Spirit lives forever. Forever. This is an eternal message. Uh, Spirit of the living God, meaning you you Gentiles of Corinth, you, you Greeks who used to worship dead gods, now the living God has written a letter on your heart. He says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And he gives a little contrast here. What was written on tablets of stone? The Ten Commandments. What is that? That's the law. Okay? What was the purpose of the law? Was it to save? Was the law to save? Never. Never intended to. You know what? People say, well, if I could have kept the law perfectly, would that save me? Uh, No, if you could have kept the law perfectly, you wouldn't need salvation. You'd be perfect. So the law is not, never has been a means for salvation. What does it do? It reveals your need for salvation. And so... It reveals something so that we can understand our need for a savior. And in verse four, he goes on, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? A new covenant. A new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter killed but the Spirit gives life. Okay, the letter is just another way of saying the law. That's Paul's word for the law, the letter. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's quite a contrast. The old covenant kills, new covenant gives life. Verse seven, he says, now if the ministry of death, the ministry of death, that's not some new initiative in the Biden administration, okay? That, the ministry of death, I can't help it. Uh, The ministry of death (laughs) is what Paul calls the law. And that's not really a derogatory term because that's exactly what the law does. The law sentences guilty sinners. We are already dead because of sin. We need resurrection. He says, this ministry of death, he goes on to say, carved in letters on stone, if it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? See, which covenant is superior? Let's just take a little gander, shall we? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the law. What kind of covenant is it? It's conditional. That means, in your notes, that it's based on works. A conditional covenant is when somebody says, Do this, and I will do this. That's a conditional covenant. It's based on what you do. And if you keep up your end of it, the promise is blessing, not salvation. Blessing is what God promises. And who's it intended for? Only Israel. Only Israel. How about the new covenant? The new covenant, let's compare. The new covenant is not the law, it's the spirit. It's the spirit. Is it conditional? No, it's unconditional. It has nothing to do with what you do. Uh, It's based not on works, but on grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the purpose is what? Blessing? No. Salvation. It's for salvation. You trust in Christ by faith, and you obtain salvation. And is it intended only for Israel originally, but it was opened up for everybody. So it's intended for all. Which of these two seems superior to you? The new covenant. The spirit trumps the law. Uh, the letter kills the spirit gives life you want a vivid picture of that contrast well it's found in the example of Pentecost now when we think of Pentecost if I asked you what is Pentecost if you're a Christian you're going to say oh that's that's the day that the spirit was, was given that the spirit came to indwell the hearts of men Pentecost very natural for Christians to say something like that uh, in our tradition. But Pentecost did not start on, in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost predated Acts chapter 2. It was a Jewish feast. And Pentecost is the Greek name for the Jewish feast of Shavuot. And Shavuot is the Jewish feast of weeks. It, uh, it marked the harvest, celebrated the harvest, but it also commemorated, the give, by tradition, it commemorated the giving of the, of the law. And so when was the first Pentecost? It wasn't in Acts 2. It was in Exodus 32. And if you went there, you would see Moses has ascended Sinai. He's been up there a while. He's meeting with God. The people are down there at the foot of the mountain. They're getting restless. They're getting impatient. They decide, well, we're not going to wait around for Moses. And they decide to revert to the practices of the land from whence they came. Egypt where there was idolatry and so they they pool their resources and they make an idol I don't know if they melted down jewelry or if they just crafted something out of wood and plated it with gold but either way they come up with this false deity and it's in the form of a golden calf and they build an altar and they make burnt offerings to this golden calf and they dance and they cavort in front of this idol and God knows what they're doing And he's up there with Moses, and he's incensed. And he reveals his plan of wrath against the Israelites. And Moses pleads with him to spare the people. And God says, okay. And he's given Moses these stone tablets, his commandments. And Moses descends that mountain, having basked in the righteousness and the holiness of God. And he gets down there, and he sees what's going on. And he sees the blatant... Affront to a holy God, the idolatry. And he sees the revelry and the debauchery that's happening. And what happens with Moses? The anger of a holy God begins to burn within him as he holds those stone tablets. He's literally holding the law in his hands. And he takes the law, contrary to their actions, the law is thrown and shatters before the people. And he then calls the Levites. Look at Exodus 32, 27. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And watch this. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. The letter kills. There was mass death on the occasion of the giving of the law. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. The disciples have gathered. They're a little low. Christ is resurrected, but now he's ascended. He's gone. He's not in their presence. They don't know what to do. They're chagrined, but then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Comes down, indwells them, wind from heaven fills the place with a mighty rushing sound. Tongues of fire appear over their heads and all of them are then filled with the Spirit and supernaturally they go out and they can now speak in and understand other languages. And what has happened on that day in Jerusalem? Uh, At the base of the Temple Mount, you've got Jews from all over the world. They're from various countries. They all speak different languages and they're in town to commemorate Pentecost, the giving of the law. That's what they're there to do. And so it's no mistake that on this day, God begins a new covenant. The day that commemorates the old covenant, God initiates a new one. And Peter goes out and he addresses the crowd in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they hear in their own language the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look what it says in Acts 2 verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, watch, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Have you ever caught that before? What happened when the law was given? How many people died? 3,000. When the Spirit is given, how many were born to new life? 3,000. My friends, I can't imagine a more vivid contrast that could show us that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the superior covenant right here. And there's other things that Paul goes into that I'm not going to deal with because of time. But he he speaks of how Moses wore a veil coming down from Sinai uh, to obscure his face because he's all gloried up for meeting with the Lord. Why did he wear a veil Some people assume it's to to keep the people from being blinded by the glory of God. No, no, not so. Paul makes it clear that he wore a veil because the glory of the law was a fading glory. And he says the glory of the new covenant is an ever-increasing glory. That's what Paul says. All right. Well, then, number six in your notes, we just want you to know that this Holy Spirit, this was a spirit requested by Jesus requested for us by jesus in john 14 he says if you love me where is he he's in the upper room he's with the disciples it's the night of his arrest and he's having he's having a a uh, a passover meal with them and during the course of that he says if you love me you'll keep my commandments and a chill goes down their spine because they know they can't do that they're not strong enough to do that and on the heels of that thought he immediately says and i will ask the father and he will give you another. And that word, my friend, another, there are two words he could have used. One is heteros, which means another of a different kind. But there's another word, alos, which means another of the exact same kind. Guess which one he used. He used alos. I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send you another. I'm going away, but he will send you one another who's just like Same divine essence. He will be another, he goes on, another helper to be with you forever. Now, in your Bible, helper is probably capitalized. That indicates personhood. That indicates divinity. And he identifies him as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be future. He will be in you. He's prophesying the indwelling of that spirit. Helper. He's a helper. Your Bible might say counselor, might say comforter. I actually like counselor. Now, by saying counselor, he's not a therapist. This is not, this is not that kind of a counselor. It's a legal term. He's like, a, like an attorney. He's your advocate. He goes on your behalf to the, to the Father. How can he do that? Because he's of the same essence. Only God can go directly to God. And that's why we have the priesthood of the believers, because we are indwelled with the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, there was a temple, there was a Holy of Holies. Only certain people could go in there at certain times. When Jesus said, it is finished, breathed his last, what happened in that temple, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer court, ripped right down the middle. As if to say, access granted. And when the Spirit came, now we have access. He's your advocate, you see. And in John 14, here's what the Lord says. In verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And there's a unity that he's promising here. He has requested this from God. And it can only be achieved through the Spirit. And when he is later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, he's praying what we call that high priestly prayer of Christ. It's a glorious thing. You ought to read the whole thing, but here's, here's one thing he says in that prayer. John 17, verse 20, he's alone, the disciples are sleeping somewhere, and he goes to the Lord, and he says, I do not ask for these only. See, he's already prayed for himself. He's already prayed for the, the 12, and now he's praying for all believers who would ever come. says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's us. Through their word, through the word of the disciples, those who would come to faith, that they may all be one. Remember, I will be in you and you will be in me and in the Father. We're all unified, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me that I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. He's saying it so many different ways. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire. See, the only way the Father can love you as perfectly as he loves his Son is if the Spirit of the Son is in you. Wow. He says, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, in them, and I in them. What's he talking about? Indwelling? So that when he says, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and yet he did, how does he keep that promise? It's going to be through the Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus' prayer get answered? You tell me. Here's what Paul says. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. In Ephesians 3, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this establishes we've got the spirit of Christ within us. He's within us. And that means to be born again, you have to have the Holy Spirit. To be saved, to become Uh, born again to become a Christian however you want to frame that phrase that it is to receive the Holy Spirit you cannot be saved apart from the Holy Spirit you have to have the Holy Spirit living in you to be born again and so this is not like Samson this is not like uh, Gideon Or Bezalel, okay? This spirit does not come upon you from time to time. This spirit is in you. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He is with you and will be in you from time to time. No, forever. Forever. Never to leave. John 7. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart. That's, that's inside, folks. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he has said about the Spirit, those who have believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. So at the time that he's talking to the disciples, there in John 7, there had been no Spirit. It, it confirms that. This is something yet to come. And even in John 16, he had not come by that point. So when he's with those disciples, he is there everything. And he's just delivered this crushing news I'm going away. And they're panicked. Whenever I leave my house, my seven year old is just distraught. Where are you going? Like she wants to go. You know, sometimes she can, sometimes she can't. She just she doesn't like the thought of me not being in the house. Even on a regular weekday, she, you know, she's in the morning. You know, if she's home from school and I got to go to work, she's like, Where are you going? I go, I got to go to work today. I mean, she, you know, this is the disciples. They're like, "You're going what? You're going where?" And here's what he tells them in John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's gonna go away on two occasions. He's gonna go away. He's gonna be led away to be just, uh, crucified, and he will die. And so physically, he will go away via death. But he will come again through his resurrection. But what he's talking about here is not his death. He's talking about his ascension. It's to your advantage that I go to the Father. See, he hadn't gone to the Father by the time he rises from the dead. There's an ascension where he goes to the father it won't be until after that ascension that the spirit will come and so this is this is a promise and the Holy Spirit is something and I I recognize that I I skipped a number for you didn't I I'm gonna go back to that just for you you're that special are you ready okay I love you like the father loves no I'm just kidding All right. Here's what he does in number five. He confirms Jesus' authority. He confirms Jesus' authority. Uh, Before Jesus' public ministry began, there was a guy working up in the Jordan region. What was his name? John the Baptist. And he's up there, and he's preaching, and he's baptizing at the Jordan River, and people are coming in droves. They're just coming in droves, and there's even some Pharisees there, and they want to know what's going on, and they know just enough of the Bible to be dangerous, and they think he he might be a threat to their status quo, and so they come, and they ask him who he is, and he's like, I'm not the Christ. He knows what they're looking for, and he says this. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. So who he is, is he someone who is trying to make the people ready for the coming of the Messiah. And in Luke 3.16, John the Baptist tells all of them. He says, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. And so, what he's saying is that Christ has all authority. And he's got a baptism that has two applications. The first is a baptism of the Spirit, and that will serve to regenerate us. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the regeneration of the Spirit. What does that mean, that the Spirit regenerates us? Well, stay tuned, but there's transformation in there. You're dead, and you're going to change. And we're going to talk about all of that. But there's another baptism that's not of the Spirit that Christ has authority to bestow, and that's a baptism of judgment. So there's going to be regeneration for believers, but there's going to be a baptism one day of judgment, of fire for the unbelievers. See, the coming of the Messiah is really a two-edged sword. When he came, there's going to be blessing. There's going to be salvation. There's going to be a kingdom eventually but there's also eventually going to be judgment, there's going to be death, and there's going to be burning of all who have rejected him. And so John is responding to these Pharisees. He's saying, I know who you think I am. I have no authority. I can't save you. I can't damn you. But there's another who can. And it's a sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. I don't, even, I don't have the ability to untie this guy's shoes All right, that's how powerful he is and a few verses later Christ has approached John and he has asked John to baptize him here's John up there he's baptizing all these people in the Jordan it's a baptism of of repentance and, and readiness to make them ready to prepare their hearts and so Jesus comes and he wants John to baptize him and John doesn't want to do it he's like who am I to baptize you it was a necessary thing, not because Christ needed to repent, but watch what happens when he gets baptized. In Luke 3:21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, what happened? The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. I don't know if it was an actual dove or just looked like a dove or what, but the Holy Spirit manifested and descended, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Do you notice who's present at this baptism? You've got a voice from heaven. Who's that? That's God the Father. I'm pleased in my Son. You've got the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and you've got the Son standing right there in the Jordan. Father, Son, Spirit, the whole Trinity gangs all here. What's this serve a purpose for? It's to affirm, it's to confirm Christ as divine. He is the Son of God. He has the power of the Spirit of God. And the only person that that could be said of is someone who himself is God. He is of God. He has all authority. And honestly, I think that point fits best at the end of this message. See, I meant to do that. Actually, I think the Spirit did that, all right? Folks, this is just a, a journey that's getting underway right now. I really hope you come back. We're gonna, there is so much to explore. Listen, I think this is something that is not taught on enough. I think one of the reasons it's not taught on is because there's a lot that deals with the Holy Spirit. Uh, The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We call it pneumatology. Pneumatology. And it's exciting because it's not just a bunch of theology. I know there is a lot of theology in what I just fired at you tonight, but there's a lot of personal application to be discovered here. And I encourage you to keep coming on Wednesdays. We're going to get to some nitty gritty stuff that you're going to be, you're just going to be amazed at what you have access to. Through the Spirit because, listen, in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is everything. It's everything. There is no Christian life apart from Him. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of opening your Word and, and learning about your Spirit, God. What a gift. We are all here because of Him, Lord, and we ought to understand Him. And so I just pray that you would anoint and bless our journey together as we continue to explore and adventure our way through your Bible, through your Word. I pray your spirit to to fill every believer here tonight all throughout the week. May they know the joy of Jesus Christ. May they be empowered to share that hope with everyone they meet. May you constantly remind them through that spirit of who they are and whose they are. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit we claim it in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. Amen.